Father God, we pray that your word would come and abide and live in us, that we would bear much fruit and that we would be the disciples of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we're continuing our theme on giving, looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. Uh, that's probably one of the reasons why lots of people have left Moscow, because uh, we're doing this series on giving. The background is this. There's a serious famine in Jerusalem. The churches of Asia Minor and Macedonia, including the church in Corinth, have agreed to raise funds for famine relief. In chapter 8 that we looked at last week, the first part, Paul has spoken about our motives for giving, the motive of gratitude and a response to the Lordship of Jesus. He's now into the practicalities. He commends to the Corinthian church three people who will visit them in order to receive the gift and take it to Jerusalem. We need to remember that in the first century, there were, no, uh, n there were no notes, no checks, and certainly no bank transfers. If people were giving money, they were giving the hard stuff, and it was heavy, and you needed a group of people to take it and carry it safely. So who are these three people? Well, there's Titus, Paul's colleague and co-worker, there is. Uh, and I quote verse 18, the brother who is famous among all the churches for his proclaiming the good news. And not only that, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us while we're administering, administering this generous undertaking. Some commentators think that might have been Luke, others say Barnabas, and others, and I'm with them, say actually it doesn't really matter who it is. And there is, in verse 22, our brother whom we have often tested and found eager in many matters. And in these verses, Paul speaks about, and there are only two things here. Uh, first of all, the need that I'm drawing out, the need for integrity in how we handle our money. In verse 21, Paul writes, For we intend to do what is right, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of others. He's concerned that not only should he do what is right, but that he should be seen to be doing what is right. There is to be no hint of scandal. When it comes to money, this is Caesar's wife stuff. If you remember, Caesar's wife not only had to be chaste, but she had to be seen as being chaste. For churches, this is particularly important. We need not only to be people of integrity when it comes to money, but to be seen to be people of integrity. Billy Graham died a few weeks ago. When he began his work as a small-time evangelist, he was dependent on many small gifts. But as he became more well-known and the work grew and the gifts grew, he realized he needed some sort of system. He set up a business. He paid everyone on the team, including himself, a fixed salary. 
and he published his personal accounts each year. In the UK and in the US, and I think also I hear, uh, I've, I've heard here as well, there is often pressure on politicians, and particularly on senior politicians, to publish their personal accounts. The pressure is often resisted. But I wonder what it would look like if your personal accounts were published. How, where you got your money from, how you spent your money. Wonder what it would look like if it was made public to everybody to see. As believers, we're called to the highest level of integrity when it comes to handling our money. And there are three questions we need to ask. I'm sure there are many more, but first of all, how did we get it, legally or illegally? And even if we got it legally, did we get it because we exploited other people or took advantage of their weakness? Did we get it because we destroyed something rather than created something? Or can we put our hand on our heart and say that how the money came to us was right. And what do we do with it? How do we spend our money? On what do we spend our money? Do we pay our taxes? Jesus speaks twice about the need to pay our taxes in Matthew 17 and Matthew chapter 22. And Paul writes about the obligation to pay taxes in Romans chapter 13. It's part of the idea of the common good. Somebody has to pay for schools, for police, for hospitals, for social security, for defense. And if we don't pay for it, then either those services cannot be provided or others will need to pay for them. I understand that the introduction of the 13% flat rate of tax here in Russia was because people were not paying taxes. Uh, and it was thought if we introduce a flat rate of tax that, that is very low, then people will start to pay their taxes. And I understand to a degree, it's working. But for Westerners, certainly for people from the UK, 13% is an astonishingly low sum of taxation. If you're, whoever you are, you normally would be paying 20%. And if you're on a higher rate of income, you're paying 40%. It is astonishingly low. For those who are wealthier, it is very low. And I would argue that those who are wealthier or those who find themselves in a situation in which they cannot pay taxes, there is a far greater responsibility to give the 13%, but more than that, to give over and above the 13% for the common good, whether that's supporting a hospital or a school or a place of worship or whatever. And how do we give? Last week I spoke about the biblical guideline of tithing, giving away a tenth. I said it is only a guideline. Some of us here should not be tithing. 
most of us here probably should be tithing, at least tithing. And there will be some here who should be giving away far more than a tithe. But we need to remember that as Christians, as people who have given our lives to God, everything that we have belongs to him. The story is told about the delivery man who never delivered anything. They went round to his flat and found it crammed full with TVs, electrical gadgets, clothes and groceries, non-perishables. As they were taking him away, he said, but why did they give me all these things if they didn't want me to keep them? As believers, we're delivery men and women. We've been given everything that we have in order that we can then give it on. A minister received a letter from a little girl in the congregation in which were a few coins. She had written a note with them. It said, this is my thieving money. It was alarming. Had the Sunday school started to send out the children Oliver Twist style to do a bit of pickpocketing in order to raise funds? But when he spoke to her, he realized she'd misspelt tithing. If we're not giving what we can afford, or even over and above what we can afford, then we are, like that delivery man, guilty of thieving. A godly sister from a local ladies' monastery was being taken up the drive of an oligarch. It was a huge estate, a tree-lined avenue, and at the end there was a huge English-style mansion. Oh, she said as she turned to her colleague, so this is what our Lord would have done if he had had some money. Think on it. And third question, and is in fact probably the most important question, what is the money that we have doing to us? This is the question that Jesus asks people time and time again. He urges them not to be controlled by money, not to be slaves to money. Next week, we'll be looking at Luke 12, where a person asks Jesus to arbitrate in a dispute about a will. Jesus says to him, take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And when Jesus tells someone to sell all that they have and come and follow him, it is not an invitation to a life of poverty, but an invitation to a life of freedom. We become like those objects that we worship. And if we worship money, if we make it our God, then we will become like money, cold and hard and calculating. Pray for us as a church that we will have integrity in dealing with money that has been given. And pray for yourself and for me that we will treat the money that we have been given 
with integrity, not as our money, but as the Lord's money. The second thing here is that this collection and those who administer it are working for the glory of God. Verse 19, while we are administering this generous undertaking for the glory of God, of the Lord himself. Verse 23, as for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of God. And most commentators will say glory of God here refers to the messengers and not in this case to the churches. I have to say that's quite an encouragement for me. I'm British and fairly reserved, especially when it comes to asking people for money. I feel it's a bit mucky and I get ever so embarrassed about it. Um, but as a pastor, I think I should be focusing on other things. But it seems that Paul is saying here that these people who are dealing with money issues, these three, are doing something that is to the glory of God. Asking people to give to a God cause, to something that is good and right and true and God-honoring, and then managing that money well and with integrity, brings glory to God. And what intrigues me, and I don't know whether you noticed this, is that one of the three people who have been sent to, by the churches to Corinth is well known as a preacher of the gospel, as an evangelist. Why on earth do the churches send an evangelist when they're talking about collecting money? And I think the reason is that giving, if it is done for the right reason, is good news. If I tell you that you must give, you must tithe because it is a law and it will make God love you more, then it is a lie and a false gospel. It's not good news, but bad news. It means those who are rich can make God love them for a little bit and those who are poor cannot. If I tell you that if you give, you will become materially prosperous, then it is a lie and a false gospel. If I try to get you to give by taking you on a guilt trip because you are well off when others are starving, it is a false gospel. Reminds me of the argument that I have to say we sometimes tried to use with our children um, when they refused to eat up or clear their plates. We would say to them, eat your Brussels sprouts, because there are starving children in the world who would give anything for those Brussels sprouts. It's using guilt to try and make your children eat and clear their plate. I have to say it never worked. The usual response was, well, they're welcome to it. But if I tell you that God loves you and that you can give nothing to make him love you more, and if I tell you that Jesus died on the cross so that you are completely and freely forgiven and you need to give nothing in order to make him forgive you more, and if I tell you that God calls you, yes, you, 
personally to know him, to be a follower of his son, Jesus Christ, to receive his Holy Spirit, and you receive that love, then you will want to give. Giving is the signature of the Trinity. Giving is the signature of the believer. It will be giving as a response to his love. It will be an act of gratitude and an act of submission and trust to the one who loves you. I think of Zacchaeus in the Bible. He was a tax collector who lived in Jericho and used his position to exploit people ruthlessly and take from them what he wanted. He heard that Jesus was coming to his hometown and he wanted to see him. So did everybody else. There was a huge crowd and Zacchaeus tried to shove his way through, but they wouldn't let him. So he climbed a tree. And when Jesus walks past, he stops by the tree. He looks up and says, Zacchaeus, come down because I'm going to stay at your house. The crowd are unhappy. They are more than unhappy. What had Zacchaeus done to deserve that? He was a thief. He was unclean. He was a traitor. In the UK, it would be a bit like Jesus going to the home of a known paedophile who had made a fortune by exploiting children on the web. But Jesus goes. He shows the love of God even to a nasty, grubby, greedy little man like Zacchaeus. And no doubt, Jesus speaks of the love of God and of the welcome of God for even a man like Zacchaeus. And something happens. Zacchaeus could have rejected Jesus and rejected that love of God, but instead he receives it. And he commits himself to be a follower of Jesus. And we're told that as Jesus leaves, Zacchaeus takes his money and says, Lord, I will give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay him back four times. That is gospel, good news giving. It's the sort of giving which brings glory to God. So what about you? Have you received the gospel, the good news of Jesus? Have you heard of how much he loves you? Have you as a response given your life to him, your relationships to him, your family to him, your hopes and fears to him, your time to him, your home and your stuff to him, your money to him? Because when you do, you will realize that we are just the delivery man or woman and you will want to be trustworthy and you will want to give. You'll want to give to society for the common good. You will want to give to people in need. You will want to give to the church for the work of proclaiming the good news of God and you will give freely and abundantly. And that will bring glory to God.